This is The Guardian. One year ago this week, Мною принято решение о проведении специальной военной операции. Tonight at six, we're live in Ukraine and the country at war after a huge Russian military offensive by land, sea and air. The world watched as Russia invaded Ukraine. And while some predicted that Vladimir Putin's forces would win in a matter of weeks, that's really not what we've seen. When President Putin ordered his tanks to roll in Ukraine, he thought we would roll over. He was wrong. Democracy was too strong. So, on the anniversary of the invasion, where are we now? How has the war changed the world? And what's next for Russia and Ukraine? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Today, we'll be focusing on Ukraine. How has Russia's invasion of the country changed our politics and politics in the world more widely? And just a warning, this episode contains descriptions of war that some listeners may find upsetting. Friday this week marks the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A year ago, the world watched as Russian troops began what was described by Vladimir Putin at the time as a military exercise. What followed on from that marked the first time we've seen war in Europe for decades, with millions of Ukrainians now displaced, thousands of lives lost, endless reports of Russian atrocities, and a very different global picture from what we knew this time last year. Now, when we started this new incarnation of Politics Weekly a year ago, I suppose we thought we'd be talking week in, week out about domestic affairs in the UK, but that wasn't how it turned out. Straight away, we explored the war in Ukraine what it meant and where it was going. And one of the first people we spoke to massively powerfully was the Ukrainian Member of Parliament, Kira Rudik. And I'm pleased to say she's going to join us again and talk about life and politics and what the war looks like right now. Right, thank you so much. Obviously, Kira, we spoke a year ago, almost, I think. And, you know, it's important that we speak to you now and get a sense of how things have changed and how you feel about what's happened since we last spoke and what's going to happen in the future, and all that stuff. Tell me, first of all, how you are, how you how you feel about the, the war right now, and I wonder as well whether a year ago you would have predicted a war of this length. Well, first of all, I think nobody could have predicted the war of this length, or just like that we will still be here. Uh, a year ago, we knew that it was not given. So right now, we are treating it as a huge gift. Just the fact that we are here and we are alive. And uh, this is probably one of the main lessons. I'm fine. I'm in Kiev. Kiev is not surrounded. We are still uh, living with the curfew 11 p.m. till 5 a.m. We see that we have made like, a tremendous journey since the last year. And nobody could have predicted that the war would be so long. But also nobody could have predicted how the world world's attitude towards Ukraine changed. Uh, we have gone through so many things that were deemed impossible in the past, starting from nobody believing in our survival for more than a couple of days, then getting the heavy weapons, then 
going into counteroffense and actually regaining half of the territories that Russia was able to capture. Every single time we are thinking anything is impossible, uh, with the right proper push, we are able to make it happen. Just tell me about um, your day-to-day life as a, as a member of parliament now. Uh, so parliament is gathering at least once in two weeks. We are gathering in secrecy, so we are not announcing it in advance. We uh, usually vote for a number of items uh, in a couple of important directions. The first one is to do everything that the military asks us. And second is uh, our journey to become a a member of EU. Uh, The third point is, of course, the humanitarian infrastructure economical direction, where we have to make sure that our economy does not completely die. And the fourth direction is fighting uh, Russian propaganda, fighting Russian influence. And it's like really important direction that we have been worked on. My everyday life as a person is rather you wake up, you check if you have uh, uh, electricity, if you have uh, heat and if you have running water. This is the first check. Many times you wake up to the air raid sirens and so you have like the last hour of sleep from under the stairs where we hide since the day one of the full-scale invasion. There we have like cereals and everything to have like breakfast. We have the lights turned on all the times because when the electricity gets on and sometimes it's like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. you have to get up quickly and start doing everything around the house. Uh, like start your washing machine, dishwasher, everything, uh, and be very quickly because uh, it it may not last for long. This winter has been very hard on us, it's true. Okay. Let me ask you about the experiences of people perhaps elsewhere in Ukraine. We read a lot and we hear a lot about awful atrocities committed by Russian forces, human rights abuses, the use of rape as a, as a weapon of war children disappearing from Ukraine. I wonder how much is that in people's thoughts? Because I suppose everybody must know somebody in those parts of Ukraine who's been directly affected by those things. Everybody has either been to the funeral of somebody he did know personally or somebody he would know like a second hand. You know, I have been to Bucha and Irpin first day after liberation. I have seen the atrocities and the results of it firsthand, the mass graves, the dead bodies of the women who were tried to be burned to cover for what had happened to them when they were alive. And I met and spoke with women who were victims of the sexual violence. It, uh, it is so terrifying that things like this can happen in 21st century. And we know that these atrocities, they happen to people at the occupied territories right now when we are speaking. Probably the, the most terrifying image that I have seen in this war was this box of dental crowns found in one of the, in one of the torture rooms in Izum. I have only seen something like this in, in Auschwitz. And still, it's still hard to process that people like us, we used to speak like same language as them, would do something like that to us. That, I would imagine, leads to a sort of state of trauma. As you say, it's impossible to process those things. 
And yet, day in, day out, people have to be determined and focused enough to carry on the war. That must be hard, combining those things. You know, it's you're, every single day you are going through so many extremely good and extremely bad things that you just have to find a way for yourself and for your family to stay sane. I think because we learned that it, tomorrow is not given and that you cannot plan for more than like a week, you try to stay stable for as long as it's possible because so many people depend on you, rely yeah. on you, especially yeah. during this winter when it's just physical survival, right? To have heat, to make sure like that, uh, that your family is safe, to make sure that you have electricity, to make sure that you, you have all the, um, all the medicines, uh, bought in advance in case there are like interruptions, all the other things. And so you have just to go on. I think it will hit us when there would be peace, when would, there would be victory. But right now having trauma is quite a luxury that you have to, that you cannot allow yourself. Um, let me ask you uh, some questions about um, people outside Ukraine, the international response to the war, and and uh, words recently spoken by uh, one of the belligerents, Vladimir Putin. So let's start with him. Did you see Putin's speech yesterday? Yes. Tell me what you made of it. Well, you know, right now, we are at this situation where the world finally sees what we have seen for nine years, that Russia is fighting not because like, they need new territories. They are fighting because it's their like, mission to restore them, the empire. And this is why they cannot be trusted. And everybody who thinks, oh, we can hush-hush them is just wrong because their mission is to expand. Their mission is to destroy because it resolves all the issues inside the country. So every single time somebody says, oh, Putin finally is a bad guy, or Putin cannot be trusted, or look, Putin withdraws uh, from international agreements. We are just like, huh? We have been saying this for so long. Uh, it took you like nine years to see that. And right now it takes so many people to die to, to the world see what we have been saying for so long. So yesterday it was like another, we have told you so. What about Joe Biden and, and what he said in Warsaw and indeed his visit to Kiev? Because there's a lot of political sort of show business involved in that, right? But at the same time, it means something. And I wonder what you think it does mean. We run on hope. Right. And I keep saying that, that our main fuel on like getting day, day to day is hope. And President Biden gave us like another chunk of it. It was powerful. And it was like another, another push for us to uh, not lose the hope and make sure that we will, that the international community will stay with us. Plus, it was, you know, emotionally, it was good because Putin wanted to have parade on our streets. And now a year in, Biden is walking there. Right, right. Yeah, there's a, yeah that's very symbolic. Yeah, right? it is symbolic. And plus, yeah. he, went, uh, he, he came here and nine years anniversary when Putin's forces started occupying Crimea. And for us, it was super symbolic saying it did not start a year ago. It started nine years ago. And it was the international community that was looking aside when he was doing what he was doing. And now the international community is stepping up. Okay, so let me ask you about that. When we spoke a year ago, I think it's fair to say you were angry about the lack of help 
from the wider international community. How do you feel now? I feel like the progress has been tremendous, but it is still a little bit too late, everything that is happening. Like with the tanks, we are getting them, but we are getting them like in summer. My main question again, are we going to be here in summer? You see, the issue is that there are two sides. The first one is what we are getting for the front. So we can push Russia back and, and stand and fight. And another set is what we are getting for the civilian population. And this is the, the, the jets because we need them. So every single time there is an attack on us, the terrorist attack, we have like more chances to survive. And it's so hard to tell people, to explain to them what you feel when you're sitting under the stairs and they say like 60 missiles are on the way to Kiev. And you just like, dear God, please. First you say, let it not be me. And then you say, let it not be anybody because you know the frustration. And there are weapons in the world that can help us, can save right. us. Right. And they, it's still with all the words, with all the support, with all the uh, confirmations, we still are not getting them. And the question is like, why? One thing runs through a great deal of what you've said to me today, which is the matter of urgency. That it seems to me, and I'm not the only person who said this, this is a sort of a standard thing in commentary about the war, that if Ukraine is going to win, it has to happen quite quickly. Um, I wonder, do you, do you feel that yourself, that there is a huge question of urgency hanging over this, that speed is really, really important? Yes, I think it's probably the most important. If the call for, for the last year was, please help us, today the call is, please help us ASAP. Yeah. Because uh, it's like Putin's game and he is not hiding it. It's Putin's game to make it like a, a war of, of attrition to wait for political changes in uh, the country's uh, lives, uh, to wait for the exhaustion, to wait for, for like another opportunity for him. We need to win the war ASAP. Every single day matters. Every single hour matters. And that there is nothing more painful than somebody saying, oh, we will do it in two or three weeks. Because again, the question is, like, how, how one can say that we have two or three weeks? We do not. Let me ask you about what it is to win. We've used that word quite a lot, but we haven't gone into the details of what that might represent. Tell me what your sense is of what Ukraine winning this war would look like. And, and in, a, in a detailed sense, as regards territory as much as anything else. So our goal and our aim is to get to the borders of 1991. And that obviously, obviously, for anyone listening... Clearly, that includes Crimea. That's that's the central point or among the central points. Crimea is Ukraine. Right. The second point is to make sure that Russia would not attack us again. And this is a tricky one. Because even if, imagine that we are already at the borders of 1981, it doesn't mean that Russia would, not stop, would stop fighting, right? It doesn't mean that even with the regime change there, they would not have like, oh, it was just Putin who wasn't doing the things wrong. Let's let's get together and fight it. Because it is in the core of their national idea, imperialism. And so the second and the, the probably key question would be how do we make sure that our children would not have to fight the same war that we do? And believe me, we would do everything that they would not have to fight it. And the question is, as of right now, as a year ago, there is still not an organization or a person or a world leader who would say, OK, we will keep we'll make sure that Putin keeps his word if there is a peace deal. 
Nobody. None. So in other words, it, it's still unclear what the the method of collective security would be that ensured that a settlement would last. That that still has a huge, huge question mark hanging over yes. it. Yes. And this is why the most secure way for us to survive is for Russia to collapse as Soviet Union collapsed into a national state. It's not going to happen, is it? Well, nobody believed that Soviet Union will collapse. And this is our hope. Honestly, as of right now, the main hope. That may be your hope, but but at the same time, perhaps speaking realistically, at some stage, Ukraine will have to negotiate with Russia and you and you very well may not get what you want. Well, again, for eight years, we have been in this like negotiating state and we have seen what it has done to us. They just gathered more forces and attacked us. So this is not something that, that you, Ukrainians will take, at least not right now. We still have it in, in us to fight. And I do hope that we will have lots of this energy to fight back because we know that, that Russia just would not keep their word. Okay. Last question. Just give me a sense of how you feel about the immediate future. <laughs> I do not plan for more than a week. But I also um, very hopeful with what we can achieve with the with the new supplies of the weapons. Uh, I do hope that Putin will uh, lose his hopes on the offensive in spring, and uh, instead we will go on counteroffensive. At least this is the feel that we get that we need to use this momentum right now, and and this rage that we turn into into fight. And I think probably one of the most. Uh, important things that happened over this year is the Western allies stopped playing reactive. You know, Putin does this, okay, we will do additional sanctions. Putin does this, okay, we will give you some more of the weapons. Uh, they started playing the first hand saying, okay, Ukraine will win. Now we need to change it to Ukraine will win soon. Ukraine will win, will win ASAP. This is the goal. Ukraine will win soon. On that note, we will let you go. Thank you so much for joining us Thank again. Thank you so much. It's really, really appreciated. Welcome back. The world is very different compared to a year ago. In the 12 months since the Russian invasion and the war began. We've seen NATO pull together and Europe united in its support of Ukraine. But while those things remain true, we've also felt the pain of sanctions placed on Russia uh, domestically. And we're currently obviously in the middle of an energy crisis that shone a light on just how reliant we are on Vladimir Putin's country. I'm joined now by the Guardian Security and Defence Editor Dan Saber, who back when the war first began came on the podcast to talk about it then, so we thought it was a good idea to have him back now. Dan, obvious question to start with. I wonder to what extent you're surprised by how Ukraine has held together in this war and is, is still where it is. That wasn't our expectation when this, when this war began. Our expectation, I suppose, was that it would be over sooner rather than later and that Russia would be dominant. And that has, obviously hasn't turned out to be the case. Well, it certainly wasn't the case. If you look back as of 12 months, and I can, I can remember actually... I was on the podcast. It was actually the day. It was a day off the invasion, and we did a slightly sort of emergency recording. I, I was in the um, I was in the Houses of Parliament, which seemed like the best place to be, where you could get some kind of where you might be able to get some kind of emergency information. So I remember we did this 
recording at the time, and I think the, the fear at the time was was that Ukraine would last only a matter of days. Yeah, uh, I think the Russians thought th- three days, but I think maybe you know maybe ten days before the, the, the Russians would be able to sort of capture Kiev and, and have a stranglehold at least on large parts of the country. Now that didn't happen, and and what Ukraine showed in the very first instance was this extraordinary resilience, this extraordinary national mobilization, and that allowed it to fend off the Russian invasion in the first instance. What we saw very rapidly was also these sort of terrible Russian military tactics, this famous convoy that got stuck on the way to Kiev. But since about eight, since about April, we've been sure that Ukraine would survive on an existential basis, that, that President Zelensky wouldn't be killed in a bombing raid or a guerrilla raid by, by, by Russian forces. You know, and so the war took on a, a, a different complexion. So I think for maybe the last 10 or so months, we've been sure that Ukraine's going to survive. What we haven't quite been sure of, and we're still not sure of really, is, you know, what is the outcome of this sort of, of, of you know, increasingly international test of strength and whether, um, you know, Ukraine really can push the Russians back and signif- inflict a significant military defeat on Russia, or whether Russia will be able to hang on to a large swathe of territory, currently about the size of Portugal that it yeah. holds in Ukraine, yeah. and, whether, and whether Vladimir Putin can claim some kind of victory. I just want to ask you, what your sense is of where we are now. We've sent tanks, we train Ukrainian soldiers, we're being asked for jets. There is this sort of spectacle built into British politics now, uh, which involves Boris Johnson, that Boris Johnson has positioned himself as this person saying more, 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 and Sunak it is now, is is standing there sort of caught in the headlights somewhat, not quite answering that call or not quite being seen to. Where do you think that is now? Well... I think that, um, I mean, yeah, it's funny, that's right. Boris Johnson has sort of lost himself a prime ministership and found himself a, a role as an unofficial spokesperson for Ukraine, arguing for a more radical policy than he would have ever been able to achieve as PM. Look, the reality is here is that for all the talk of uh, British sovereignty and, and, and so, in a, you know, in the Brexit debate, but the reality is when it comes to military matters, you have to proceed as uh, as part of an alliance. And Britain is a you know, a significant military player, but still, a, you know, a, a, a medium-sized one at best in a, in a world that's dominated by, of course, the US, but in which uh, working in alliances uh, is crucial. And, and teams only move as far as, fast as their slower members. But so Britain's sort of taken on this role, Britain's taken on this role, which is about the best role it can take on, if truth be told, because... You know, whether you you know whether you like it or not, you know Britain is sort of increasingly underinvested in its military, um, has a fairly and has a fairly has a limited to negligible land capability, which is what Ukraine particularly needs. And the Ukrainians know that as well. They can't really expect very much from Britain. The moral support, though, is very welcome. And um, uh, you know, as long as that continues, that will count for something. Let's talk about what might happen next. There is a lot of talk around, as you will know, about a renewed. Russian offensive, the idea that, that Russia incrementally is um, is advancing in, in certain parts of Ukraine and that something pretty awful is sort of imminently on the way. Do you think that's the case, that we're likely to see a, a, no. a ramping up of Russia's efforts in Ukraine now? Oh, I, I think we'll see a ramping up, but a ramping up to no great effect. I, I've come back from Ukraine pretty recently. I was on or near the front line in the, not far from a place called Vuladar in the east of Ukraine, so I was sort of down there in the freezing cold, minus six degrees, and 
in, in, in deepest Donbass, if you will. And what happened in Vunadar, even when I'd arrived, was that essentially there'd been three weeks of, of Russian tank-led offensives against a tiny coal town. And the reality was that, that, that after two to three weeks, the Russians had point blank failed to capture it, lost dozens of tanks in the process. Why? Because they'd shown terrible tactics. They were being lining up. They were lining up in a vertical file like they learned nothing from the failed assault from Kyiv and being spotted by Ukrainian drones from the air, allowing the artillery to pick them off. So this kind of terrible performance means that, yeah, there might be, Russia might attempt more of an offensive. It's got about 300,000 troops in the country at the moment, which is, by the way, double what it had to its initial invasion force, to give you some idea of the scale. But but it's running its attacks so incompetently uh, in places like Vuladar and in other places, most notably Bakhmut, where this is World War One style warfare with incremental, minimal to incremental gains at best. And so the idea that Russia's going to mount has got some spectacular ace up its sleeve, I don't quite buy. But now my implication, you're looking at, at grinding stalemate. Is that your expectation? Well, there's one more car, one more thing that has to play out, perhaps before you get to that dismal point, um, which is, of course, meanwhile, the Ukrainians are being supplied by with Western weapons, uh, well over 100 tanks, mostly from German, German supplies, Leopard 2s and older Leopard 1s, though there are a smattering of British 14, British Challenge 2 tanks as well. So this, this could create a strong kind of mechanised force, the basis of any kind of military attack force for a kind of D-Day moment sometime in the spring before or after Easter, um, potentially. So uh, I think there's a lot of expectation around that. And I think there's a lot of political hope around that. And if you sort of follow the prevailing drift of the political narrative, I think what all politicians are saying now is we've given you the tanks. Now now go and win the now President Zelensky go and win the war. It, it's just not that simple. The Russians have got the numbers, 300,000 have already talked about, are well dug in. But there is obvious Ukrainian move, which is if they can split the, the so-called land bridge between Crimea uh, and um, and Russia Russia proper, if you'd like, by driving down roughly on the map from a place called Zaporizhia to the to, to the sea, then that that would place the Russians in a much more difficult position because it would split the lines of communication. But this is a big if. This is a big if. When we spoke to Kira Rudik, the Ukrainian member of parliament, before we began this conversation, she underlined something that I keep seeing in all sorts of places, which is the idea that because of the very, very precarious damage state the Ukrainian economy is in, chiefly, Ukraine is going to have to win this quickly if it's going to win. Before we get on to what winning actually means, but if it's going to get a decisive advantage, then that has to be established fast now. That's sort of where we are. I think that there's something in that. And what I'm saying is also there's a lot riding on it politically. If if if, if President Zelensky can achieve big results in, in spring going into early summer with this Western material, Western military equipment, then it will appear justified. He will he will appear doubly heroic. And, and, it, and it looks like Ukraine has got the potential to win the war. The alternative scenario is clearly that that, that, that doesn't really work out as hoped or it takes much longer or it's much more complicated. Then we're into something... Um, neither side is achieving a decisive breakthrough. Fighting will continue in the autumn. Neither side really anywhere near wanting to make peace. And, and suddenly we've got a scenario that feels a, a bit less attractive. You know, is the West going to keep on supplying weapons and munitions because this is a proxy war? But that's certainly what Russia might be hoping for, that if it can't produce a breakthrough now, it can sort of grind, grind the West into submission and perhaps wait for political cycles to turn. 
Let's hear little excerpts from the two big speeches this week from Vlad- what Vladimir Putin said, first of all. This is him talking about his sort of frame for the war in Ukraine in the sense that it's a struggle on Russia's part against the West. I would like to emphasize that it was before the special military operation they were negotiating the uh, supply of uh, heavy military equipment and planes and uh, anti-aircraft defense systems. And they were also publicly talking about supply of nuclear weapons. NATO and Western countries were setting their military bases on our borders and uh, biological laboratories, and they were training uh, on the future theater of military actions. If the war grinds on, do you think the way that Putin has framed it and the sense that uh, enough Russian people are prepared to believe that, do you think that will be sustainable or do you think that's already starting to fall apart in Russia? I think it's sustainable. I mean, you had a sort of baffling mixture of nonsense and some, and you know, some truth there from Putin. This idea that the West is going to give Ukraine nuclear arms or biological labs is utter is is is, is utter nonsense. Well, what was the and, truth? And, what was the truth part? Well, there is no truth in that. And as for um, arming Ukraine, that was essentially done in, in response to Russian ag- aggression. Nevertheless, what what Putin I think wants to say and can say is that Russia is right now engaged in a war with the West more broadly, because the West is supplying so much uh, weaponry. And that this is a struggle, this is rhetoric that can play well to his own audience internally. And although there's no question, I guess Putin has been on sort of, is, is in greater threat, if you like, than he has been at any time in his sort of two decades of, of rule or in Russia, he doesn't look like under that much threat. Okay, let's hear Joe Biden. Autocrats only understand one word, no, no, no. No, you will not take my country. No, you will not take my freedom. No, you will not take my future. And I'll repeat tonight what I said last year in the same place. A dictator bent on rebuilding an empire will never be able to ease the people's love of liberty. Brutality will never grind down the will of the free. And Ukraine, Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia. Never. I'm interested to know your sense of how sustainable that kind of rhetoric is. If you think about the idea that the war conceivably may well grind on and on and on. We all know the strange state American domestic politics is in and the fact that there are Republicans who are much more sceptical about the war and America's support for Ukraine than Joe Biden is and so on. Well, that's the, look, and that, and that's the crucial question, I think. I mean, for now, it's incredibly reassuring for Ukraine that, that Joe Biden's sort of taken this on as his principle foreign policy challenge after the, you know, after the catastrophe of Afghanistan, where, of course, you know, the US walked out after 20 years of war and gave the country back to the Taliban. So that was an absolute disaster. So here he's trying to portray, you know, not unreasonably, I think, actually, uh, this war as a sort of a fight between freedom and a, and, and a kind of autocratic, uh, unattractive, even Bond villain Russia, or Bond villain Vladimir Putin. Then there's a kind of much more important question, which is that's all fine, fine during 2023. But as you said, you know, the US electoral cycle looms. There's no question, I think, that if Donald Trump were to win back the presidency, at, at the very least, you would have much more erratic decision making around foreign policy. And that's putting it mildly because you'll remember what it was like last time. And without US military support, Ukraine's stuffed. So I've just, just found some figures today. 
uh, Germany's Kiel Institute, which tracks these things, has sort of got the US providing 44 billion euros of military support to Ukraine and Europe, and I'm including the UK here, 18.7 billion. So, you, you know, you, you could do the math. America, militarily, America is everything. And, and, and any change or any dilution of this strong pro-Ukraine policy of the White House is going to be a problem for, for President Zelensky. And Vladimir Putin knows that. Okay, let's talk about something which has cropped up sort of every five or six minutes in the conversation we've had so far, which is the question of how this war conceivably might end. It does seem that under the surface, perhaps, there's a divergence between Ukraine and its Western allies in the sense that Ukraine insists that they intend to capture or recapture, as we said already, all Russian-held territory, including Crimea. Now, Western leaders and diplomats, as I understand it, don't disagree in public, but in private, they don't really believe that retaking Crimea is a realistic war aim. And I suppose bound up in that is the sense that sooner or later, negotiation has to rear its head. Belligerence in a war always always imply sort of total defeat and the idea that they'll get what they want. But we all know that that isn't the way that most wars end. So in that sense, I guess I'm asking you what your expectation is, if you, if you can be so bold. When it happens, who knows, but how it might conclude. Okay, so I don't quite, I don't see it the way that you've set out in your question, which is you've talked about negotiations, which is, uh, it strikes me as a laughable proposition. So there is, I do not believe this war ends with a handshake between Putin and Zelensky, or even a treaty that they both signed and some sort of, you know, you fought a good war, but here's where we've ended up. The two leaders can't stand each other. The the two countries are miles and miles apart and where, where, where they want to be. And both sides have got an interest in carrying on with the conflict. A much more realistic scenario to my mind is that we get a conflict that kind of, that firstly runs for a long time, the, the, the lessens in intensity from where it is now and drifts towards something around the kind of lines of, lines of control scenario with some moderately heavy fighting, but not, not as heavy as now. So there's some similarities to what happened in the Korean War in the sense that the Korean War ended in 1953 and there's still been no peace deal. Um, the, the difference is that, 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 that I think the conflict between these two countries will be much hotter. And I very much hope this isn't the case, John, that we'll be having a conversation in a year's time about where, where, where we're at um, uh, because I think the conflict will be running on then because there's just no prospect for a deal between between these two countries whose who's leaders, leadership, and most importantly, whose peoples are miles apart. But that cuts across what we said earlier, the idea that, that to secure any sort of dominance, Ukraine has to move to an advantageous position quickly. That's, that's not going to happen. So, but you think that that eventuality that you've talked about, which is a sort of grinding stalemate with regular flashpoints and so on, that Ukraine can, can exist meaningfully? In the midst of a situation like that, it, it can as long as it gets because it, it needs just not just um, Western military support; it also needs Western financial support, yeah, yeah. you know, just to keep its books balanced. But I mean, look for sure. I mean, I've been to Kiev, I've, I've been to Kiev, you know, many times, and uh, you, you won't be surprised to hear that um, uh, you know life carries on in many ways pretty much as normal once you discount the air raid sirens and, of course, the occasional terrifying. Uh, missile missile raid. So yeah, can Ukraine, you know, function in this kind of state of state of full war or or some lesser long term state of semi war? For sure, for sure it can. And so we, we, you know, the fundamental point here, John, is we're moving to a very different world. We are moving to a world which has a higher level of conflict in it than it had previously prior to this war. And this idea that, or any idea that. 
one side or the other is going to prevail, that there's going to be a peace deal, that we're going to move on and it's going to be like how it was, going to be much more like how it was. It isn't the case. And that has consequences for Western governments who have spent most of the last 20 years, in most cases, switching money out of defence and into health and are going to be faced with the tough choice of maybe having to switch some money back into defence, which may be necessary, but may also be a hard political sell. And to look back where we started, which is comparing where Ukraine is now relative to a year ago, the point is, as, as awful as awful as that outcome might sound, that's hugely preferable to the worst fears that everybody had 12 months ago, isn't it? Because Ukraine survives. Look, absolutely. And I think that, you know, embrace the counterfactual for a second and then sort of shudder with fear. I mean, imagine if if if, if Putin had captured Kiev in a week or two weeks, if Zelensky had been killed, if if Russian troops had been pr- pr- parading, as they'd hoped, down Kristatik, you know, uh, Ukraine's, uh, Ukraine's answer to, to Park Lane or this would be a terrifying thought, and Russia would felt, would have felt emboldened and even more confident, and able thinking about threatening well Moldova, other European states, so on and so forth. But the difference, I think, where it could have been, nevertheless, is significant. And I think the idea that that, that Putin would have taken Kiev quickly is, is is a terrifying one to contemplate. And even now, the reality is, I think, a bit harder than we'd like to imagine. Right on that note, of sort of, it's not quite optimism, is it? But it's um. It's a recognition that things could have been immeasurably worse. Thank you for joining us today, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week the UK wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review. You might also want to listen to Politics Week the UK's sister podcast, Today in Focus, where this week Daniel Boffy tells the story of Dennis Katch, who's believed to be the first Ukrainian soldier to be killed by Russian forces on the 24th of February 2022. And on Politics Weekly US with Joni Greve, she'll be speaking to Susan Glasser of The New Yorker about why President Biden chose this week to visit Kyiv and what the future might hold for the US and its NATO allies. This episode of Politics Weekly UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Kakoutier and the executive producers are Danielle Stevens, Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 